Hello, my name is Will and you're listening to Exploding Helicopters, the only podcast in the world that can be bothered to waste time and energy talking about helicopter explosions in films. Now, in the 1980s, America lived under the twin shadows of the Cold War and Chuck Norris's inexplicable Hollywood stardom. Looking back, it's hard to know which was a more terrifying sign we were facing the end of the world. So what action movie scenario could be better than a film where the Soviets plot the destruction of the United States and the only person who can halt them is that man Chuck Norris? Yep, we're looking at the VHS-era classic, Invasion USA. To help me with that, I'm joined by a man who doesn't do press-ups. He pushes the earth down. He can shoot people by pointing his finger and shouting bang, and he's counted to infinity. Twice. My guest is Todd Liebenau from Forgotten Films. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you very much. It's time to die. (laughs) (laughs) It is indeed. It is indeed. Do you want to take a moment to tell people about uh, Forgotten Films and your uh, your own podcasting activities? Sure, yeah. Well, my blog is called Forgotten Films, and uh, what I do there is focus on what I call the movies that time forgot. So, you know, I don't talk about classics or, you know, new releases, things like that. This is about movies that have fallen off the radar a bit, you know, just people don't talk about them anymore. Maybe back in their day they were big hits, maybe not, you know, maybe they were, you know, uh, just a dud from the start, but it's always been fun for me to find a movie that I've never heard of before or to be like one of only 50 people that has logged watching a movie on Letterboxd, you know, something like that. So I love just finding those movies that sometimes they're hidden gems and sometimes they're forgotten for good reason. But uh, yeah, that's what that's all about. And so along with that, I have a podcast that's called The Forgotten Filmcast, where each episode I'm joined by another blogger or podcaster and we talk about a forgotten film. Uh, and then I actually have a second podcast that's called Walt Sent Me that I do with Kristen Lopez from Journeys in Classic Film. And that's all about Disney movies, but Disney in the broad sense where anything that was released by any of the many companies that Disney has owned over the years is is fair game. So, uh, you know, whereas one week we might be talking about an animated movie, like recently we did The Great Mouse Detective, the episode that's due to release here in a few days is about Ed Wood, Tim Burton's film about the filmmaker Ed Wood, and uh, that was released under Touchstone Pictures, which is owned by Disney. So we cover a wide range of different movies there, and on every episode we also cover an animated short subject from Disney's huge vault of, of animated shorts. So that's been a lot of fun. Okay, before we get into Invasion USA, I wanted to find out if you'd seen anything interesting lately. Well, yeah, I'm always looking for interesting things, but the thing that I think I'll mention this time, because uh, just a day before we're recording this podcast, we lost wrestler slash actor Rowdy Roddy Piper. I happened to watch a film that he was in called Hell Comes to Frogtown, which is a B-movie done by Roger Corman's New World Pictures, mid-80s, I forget exactly what year it was released. But, you know, it's basically a post-apocalyptic type of thing where Piper plays a guy named Sam Hell, and he's been hired, or I shouldn't say hired, he's been captured by this group of, of nurses because... Fertile men are a rare thing, and he's one of the few fertile (laughs) men in the world, so they need him to repopulate the species, but they have to contend with these mutant frog slash humanoids that like to kidnap fertile young women and so yeah it's uh, you know the, the 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 future of the human race depends on rowdy rowdy piper there and it's, <laughs> it's kind of like it couldn't be in better hands no yeah exactly and i mean it's got i think i would describe it as like kind of a b-grade version of something like the road warrior but with giant mutant frogs 
Okay. I think it's time to get stuck into Invasion USA, so let's find out what that trailer man guy has to say about it. Time for dinner! No one thought it could ever happen here. They are an army of international terrorists. America has not been invaded by a foreign enemy in nearly 200 years. Their target, America. Their objective, control. 18 hours from now, America will be a different place. Now, only one thing stands in their way. It's time to die. They wanted a war. See you now. He gave them one. See you a postcard. Chuck Norris. Invasion USA. So Invasion USA came out in 1985. It stars Chuck Norris as a retired CIA agent who's tempted back into service when he learns that his nemesis, a Russian agent called Rostov, is planning to destroy America. Rostov's dastardly plan involves tricking America into destroying itself. He floods the country with hundreds of saboteurs to unleash a wave of seemingly motiveless terrorist attacks. With the authorities unable to stop the violence, law and order in the country begins to break down. So it's up to Chuck to stop Rostov before the US collapses under the weight of its own rotten, decadent, bourgeois capitalism. The film was directed by Joseph Zito, who also made Missing in Action, which starred Chuck Norris, and he also directed one of the Friday the 13th sequels. It stars Richard Lynch as Rostov and Melissa Prophet as a journalist who is sort of partnered up with Chuck Norris. Todd, this was your choice to review, and I know it was a first-time watch for you. Why did you pick it, and what did you make of Invasion USA? I think part of the reason I picked it was because it's a movie that I had definitely heard of back in the 80s, but never gotten around to seeing. And I wholeheartedly admit I am deficient when it comes to watching a lot of Chuck Norris films. I have seen a few. I've seen Missing in Action. I know I've seen The Octagon. There's probably a few others in there, but... You know, a lot of his action films of the 80s, I just have not gotten to yet. So I, I thought, well, here, here's a good excuse. Let's let's get this ball rolling with Invasion USA. And I had so much fun with this movie. <laughs> this, <laughs> this thing is uh, completely nuts. It's um, it's so perfectly kind of sums up some of the things that were out there uh, in this country in, in the 80s. I mean, just kind of the Cold War fear. Uh, it actually reflects a lot of fears now, even today, because, you know, in the post 9-11 world where we've got, you know, the we're wondering about, you know, terrorist attacks, uh, you know, on our shores and things like that. I mean, this is the worst fears of all that realized, you know, and coming at a time where we were also having movies like Red Dawn just the year before. I mean, this just kind of fits perfectly into that whole uh you know fear of the cold war and and all that that was going on right in the mid 80s and i mean who better to face than chuck norris he just blew me away in this movie for me this film is something of a sort of time capsule because um you know i know you're a sort of similar age to me so would have grew up in the 80s and you know would remember the sort of the cold war and and kind of like the politics of the era and you know the the plot now may seem possibly a bit sort of sort of laughable but i think you know from having grown up in that time i think that actually it did actually realistically sort of play to some of people's fears at the time so i mean i wondered obviously you know i'm coming at this from the perspective of somebody in the united kingdom um i wondered how you thought the kind of the film played on people's sort of paranoia at the time you know given that this is a bit sort of close to home to you well one of the things i really found interesting about this is that they really do try to 
you know, play with elements that are really going to hit somebody, you know, with kind of the, the down home, all American value type of a thing, because a bunch of these terrorist attacks that we have here are right hitting at the heart of Americana. You know, I mean, we've got a, a suburban neighborhood that is blown away. We've got a mall at Christmas time. We've got a church. We've got a school bus. We've got the ruins of an amusement park. You know, all these things that are just, you know, kind of that all American type of vibe where we're seeing these attacks happen or, or the aftermath of the attacks. And I, I just thought, yeah, that's very calculating the way they did that to really, you know, kind of burst past that whole it can't happen here type of mindset. I think there was also some slightly more extra sort of political elements to it as well, which, you know, I'd be interested in your take on it, because it also seemed to be, again, you know, they attack these sort of very iconic or very locations, you know, very much associated with Americana. But there are also some elements in here about where these saboteurs seem to be trying to sort of divide America, perhaps along tensions or fault lines within America itself. So there's a kind of an attack on what I think is a a kind of group of Mexicans and Mm -hmm. The attack comes from these people who are sort of dressed up as policemen, and then some real policemen come along later, and the and these Mexicans just sort of attack the police. And it's there. uh, There was also a sort of scene where Chuck Norris is kind of going through this sort of deprived, dodgy neighbourhood, and it seemed to be that the film sort of was hinting at splitting America along kind of class or racial lines as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. And even the first scene of the film. You get that because you've got a boatload of uh, people who I assume were like escaping Cuba, you know, coming uh, to Miami or something like that. I mean, that is definitely always in the news uh, in the 80s, you know, when this film came out. And Richard Lynch's character pulls up in a boat. You think that he's a nice guy. He's the Coast Guard or whatever. He's welcoming these people. And then they blow them all away. <laughs> and, you know, even with that, I thought, OK, yeah, there's they're trying to raise up the the different communities the different you know divides that are already there you know racially or culturally or whatever and get people fighting against each other yeah you definitely see that throughout this film and that scene you mentioned with the you know the neighborhood of of the latinos or whatever and and then the cops show up you know and they they're fighting against the cops i mean again talking about things in our world today watching that scene i'm thinking you know this is the type of thing we're seeing now as we see you know the aftermath of the incidents in in Ferguson or various other mm. places in our country where just you know the cops are not seen in this positive light by everybody anymore and uh so yeah that really kind of was was something that was hitting home just for where we're at today and as a consequence of these attacks that these terrorists are sort of carrying out to sort of engineer this type of uh, social disruption we see uh, you know we start to see elements of like American society breaking down so we see not quite riots but kind of close to sort of riots over over food because shops don't have uh, aren't able to kind of get uh, new supplies and we we hear about sort of vigilante groups that are sort of taking action and the fact that the police are no longer sort of turning up to work because they're staying home <laughs> to kind of look after their families I mean, the I police this... are completely incompetent <laughs> in this movie. they're not the finest first line of defense are they uh, in this film Did you think that that was realistic? I mean, again, coming at this from a sort of British perspective, um, I think we sort of rightly or wrongly in Britain sort of pride ourselves on sort of how we face sort of adversity. So going back to the Second World War, there's uh, the whole notion of what's called the sort of blitz spirit where... You know, yeah. people came together to stand firm against the, the threat that was posed against them at that time. 
you know, I think if you did this in the UK, I think people would go, oh, we wouldn't we wouldn't uh, react like that. We'd, we're made of sort of sterner stuff. <laughs> How do you find that element play for you? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think I have always kind of imagined that the, the Brits are going to be a bit more, uh, oh, you know, not quite so knee jerk, uh, reactionary. I mean, I don't know, you know, the stuff about the food shortages and that I can certainly buy that. I mean, you see, you see that kind of craziness when there's a weather incident or something like that here. You know, the idea of vigilante groups rising up and that, you know, I've always kind of wondered if we were really pushed to that, would the people here rise up and do that kind of thing? So I'm not sure that that strikes me as realistic, but you know, the kind of, freaking out over you know can can i get a a, a packet of kool-aid or whatever you know <laughs> that i i can buy uh you know totally but you're talking about the the role of the cops in this i mean that was one of the things that was kind of the biggest suspension of belief for me with this whole thing because you've got these cops that keep showing up in the various scenes and the one scene of course that i just thought was the worst with that was where after the the invading force of Russians and Koreans, and I, I don't know, it's a bunch of different people. I don't know who all makes up this army that Richard Lynch has put together, but they come ashore in Florida in these transport boats that look like they're out of the Normandy invasion, you know, that type <laughs> of thing, with the flaps that come down and everybody runs ashore. And so the boats are all still sitting there, and these cops are walking all along the beach, and it's just like it's no big deal. And it, it's like, guys, the remnants of Saving Private Ryan are right there on the beach, and you're just walking through the scene, no big deal. Th those were the parts of the movie where I had the biggest problem. I mean, you know, I, I guess I could accept the lone vigilante of, of Chuck Norris, you know, he's the one hope for the nation, more than I could these cops that just you know, we're not doing anything. Well, one of the problems I had with this film was the opening, which I felt was quite sort of confused. And I don't know how did that get in the way for you? Well, it definitely threw me off because I, I you know, it didn't seem like, you know, at that point we were really into Lynch's plot for things. And, you know, I, I, it confused me as to how that exactly was supposed to work in to his whole plot to, to dismantle America and it was, it, you know, I mean, for all the violence in this movie, that scene in particular got, you know, pretty gruesome because, you know, we've got the setup where we've got all these people on a boat and they focus in on like a, a little boy and his grandfather, I think it was. And, you know, they're talking about coming to America and all this stuff. And then Lynch shows up and everyone gets blown away. And though we don't see the child die, you know that he had to die because everybody ended up dead. And then they go and they get some drugs out of the hull of the boat. And I didn't wasn't clear on how that all factored into everything. But, yeah, the, the first scene was uh, it definitely threw me off a bit. And, and it, I don't really completely understand how that factors into the whole plot. Well, I think what Lynch was doing with by taking those drugs, he was then using those drugs to then buy the weapons that he needed to equip his ah, terrorist okay. army. So okay. that was that was the idea. But I just it just struck me of, you know, surely there was a better way of organizing this particular plot in the sense that why wouldn't Lynch's Soviet paymasters just give him sufficient money to just buy those guns outright? Why does he need to first off? steal a Coast Guard boat, then hijack this boat full of Cuban refugees, steal drugs to then buy guns from... I mean, it just seemed quite a lot of unnecessary threads you were being made to follow at the beginning of the film, just yeah. really to kind of get into essentially second gear of the film. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, I was unclear even if he was, you know, completely being, uh, financed or whatever, uh, by the Russians. I, you know, I didn't know if he was just a, a rogue element here because like I said, his army seems to be a mishmash of, <laughs> of people from every possible nation, person, regime, whatever that hates America today, you know, so. I wondered if part of that was actually just simply, um, what extras were available to me. <laughs> I'm sure that's a big part of it, yeah. But um, whether you're a fan of him or not, Chuck Norris was a sort of big star, and this is one of his iconic roles, and certainly how he dresses in this film, the one-liners that he delivers, and the action sequences that he gets um, are ones which have come to uh, sort of definitely define sort of part of his image. What are your sort of thoughts on Chuck Norris and uh, his performance here? Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, he's the, the epitome of the, the man of few words, you know, and when he does say something, it's a gem. The one line that just sticks with me and, and, uh, you know, will probably be one that I will repeat often in my life is the, <laughs> is the scene where he, he's, uh, you know, going to, to track down Rostov and he finds that one guy and, and, uh, he stabs him through the, the hand. And then these other guys come in and he says to the one guy, I'm going to hit you with so many rights, you're going to be begging for a left. (laughs) (laughs) Just those little kind of gems or, or, uh, you know, like when he throws the the briefcase bomb back at those guys, he goes, oh, it didn't work. And now it will. (laughs) And the thing blows up. I mean, the the guy has, you know, just a minimal amount of dialogue. But when he does speak, they're, they're wonderful. And just his coolness and the way that he approaches everything. I mean, his weapon of choice throughout most of this is a rocket launcher. I've rarely seen so much rocket launcher action in a film as there is in Invasion USA. It's, oh, uh... it's great. It's great. And that, you know, when he does go to like the machine guns that he has in these shoulder straps, he doesn't even bother to take them out of the holsters. He just puts his hands on them, twists the things up and runs around with them still, you know, attached to the holster. The guy is just cool as a cucumber in this thing. And, and, uh, yeah, he, he's just, he was fun though. I, I, you know, the, the big plot point with his character in general that I just, I didn't quite get, you know, not that I really minded too much, but it was like, how on earth does he know when all these things are happening? You know, <laughs> because it's not like he's gone and done all kinds of an intelligence work here, but you know, when the bad guys show up at the mall, he drives a truck through the door of the mall and he's there. He just happens to know that the bad guys have put a bomb on a school bus full of kids. You know, he just, he just knows these things. And I guess that's, that's what happens when you Chuck Norris. I think that's the only explanation because he does appear to be psychic in this film. The way he just keeps turning up at these different moments of crisis in order to, to sort of save the children on the bus or to save the shoppers in the mall. He does have a, an incredible ability just to turn up uh, at the nick of time, uh, seemingly without any reason or, or motive, just a kind of uh, sixth sense to turn up there yeah, at, at the exactly. time. But, uh, I really enjoyed the way that Chuck Norris's character was uh, introduced to us in this film because we we find him, he's, uh, he's a retired CIA agent and he seems he, he's living out in the, the Miami... Uh, Everglades in the in the swamp there and he's uh, we meet we first encounter him and he's just he's wrestling an alligator I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that too I was like what a great way to first appear on screen you're wrestling an alligator I mean all the things you're going to do the bad guys throughout this that's great but you wrestled an alligator that's amazing you know there probably is no greater epitome of 
American manhood, I think, than Chuck Norris in this film, possibly, because he's, we meet him, he's wrestling an alligator, he's dressed in double denim, he's got like these great jeans on, and he's wearing a denim shirt. Um, he's got the belt buckle with the snake skin on it, you know. <laughs> then, then we see him with, you know, cutting up some logs with a chainsaw, and yeah. he's, he's, then parts of the film he's just bare chested, and he's got these, the double Uzis. Yeah, he's just the sort of real, a sort of epitome of, of masculinity in this film. I, and I, he got an awesome beard, too. You can't forget <laughs> the beard. But playing against, amusingly, sort of playing against all of this sort of very, very overt masculine sort of imagery is the fact that Chuck Norris lives in this swamp in his shack. He lives and he seems to have a pet baby armadillo as a, as a, yeah. as a kind of house guest, which uh, possibly the, the, the kind of the... The biggest emotional beat in the film is when uh, Rostov comes and blows up Chuck Norris's home with uh, with some uh, rocket launchers again because uh, nobody seems to use anything else in this film. And you know, so we we are we do the director does have the wisdom to uh, show us a, a shot of the aftermath and the baby armadillo just kind of scuttling away from the uh, the remains of the house. So we, I was we... like, you, you can't kill the armadillo. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one thing to kill the dog in a movie, but yeah, the armadillo. Don't don't go there. But uh, just coming back to Chuck's performance, I would agree with you. I think he's actually very good in here, and I'm I wouldn't class myself as the world's biggest Chuck Norris fan. Um, but I think he's actually very effective in this film. He's, he really pairs down his performance and. He delivers the lines very slowly. It's slightly theatrical, yeah. but I actually think it really works here. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I said how he's got a lot of nice one-liners here, but it, it, you never really get that kind of wink-wink, ah, I just said something funny there. You know, kind of, you know, where the action stars of the 80s as, as you know, things went on, you know, in the in the post-Rambo and, and just, you know, Schwarzenegger with all the, the little zingers that would get put in there. Yes, you've got lines here that are zingers, but they're not done in that wink-wink kind of way. And, and you know, it, it just it comes off a lot better here because it's not like, OK, guys, I just shot the bad guys and here's the joke. You know what I mean? It just it just flows a lot better, I think, the way Norris approaches it here. So we've talked about Chuck Norris, but there's also some other really sort of familiar faces in the cast in this film. So we've got Richard Lynch as Rostov, who would be a very familiar face to anyone who watched TV in the 80s. Uh, we've also Richard got... Lynch, or as I like to call him, not Rudger Hauer. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think those two were sort of battling over the same roles, do you? <laughs> they might have been. I mean, the two guys look a lot. I mean, if you can't get Rudger Hauer, you get Richard Lynch, I guess. I think he's fabulous in this film. You know, throughout his career, he's essentially sort of played villainous characters. And, and here he is in absolute sort of, you know, dial it up to 11 villain mode. He's got a oh, fantastic yeah. line in sort of stairs that could probably are so hard that they could cut diamonds. He's given a, a kind of trademark where he likes to sort of shoot people in the genitals, which is um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> quite uh, quite unnecessary. But it does it it does at least establish him as yup, he's definitely the villain of the piece. Well, that first scene where he does that is definitely one that needs discussion. And yeah, I mean, just Richard Lynch in general is great in this. He's so cold in this and just, you know, that stare that he's got. And, and, you know, he's, he's a hands on guy. He's not just the, the villain <laughs> here, you know, sending out his, his, his soldiers. I mean, the scene, which again, this is a scene I want to talk about more later, but where he, where they blow up the neighborhood, his, his buddy starts to do it and he's like, no, 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 give, give me the rocket launch. He wants to do it himself. 
you know. But yeah, the scene where he encounters another name that needs to come up, Billy Drago. You know, Drago's like, what, drug dealer or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so that scene is just the standout moment for me in this movie because it's so brutal. I mean, not only does he put his gun down Drago's pants and blow his nuts up. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, oh, Drago's in this, too. I was like, oh, we're going to get Richard Lynch and Drago in the same movie. <laughs> uh, but no, he gets eliminated quickly, but he blows Drago away. But there's this girl in the room there who's snorting cocaine and he slams her head down on the table, shoving the coke pipe upper nose so she's bleeding out the nose and he shoves her out the window in slow motion it's it's just a wonderfully brutal sequence <laughs> we've already seen richard lynch shoot dead a whole boatload of refugees but just in case we i don't know we maybe uh, missed that scene or were uh, kind of not didn't quite sort of take it in yeah he gets this fantastic sequence here where he yeah really goes to town on billy drago's kind of drug dealer and and that poor lady who was just just trying to sniff a line of coke she gets very i don't think she was any great threat to him but it was uh yeah a, a sort of it reminded me a little bit of um sort of a kind of uh 1980s exaggerated version of james cagney kind of pushing a grapefruit oh, yeah. into a woman's face sure yeah <laughs> seem to uh, be a bit of a callback to that maybe yeah absolutely and we've also got melissa prophet in this film as a sort of journalist who is kind of latched on to sort of norris and what did you make of her sort of character because it seemed to be trying to introduce a buddy element into this film, but it didn't really seem to, they didn't really seem to have the courage of their convictions to really make a thing of it. So she sort yeah. of, it seemed like a, a, a thread that went nowhere. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, she was pretty forgettable just in general. I mean, it's like Norris just so rules this movie. I mean, he's a one man force. You know, he's all the, the major sequences are him doing his thing. And, you know, every now and then this female reporter shows up and you're going, oh, yeah, there's the reporter. You know, maybe she's going to be a love interest. Maybe she's going to join him on a few things. You know, she's with him in a few scenes, but she's pretty inconsequential to what's going on there. And, yeah, like what you were saying, it seemed like someone said, well, we've got to have a, a love interest type. We've got to give him somebody to have along with. But, you know, maybe as they're going with, they're going, hey, it's Chuck Norris. He doesn't need anybody. You know, so <laughs> she just really fell by the wayside. And, and she doesn't really do anything to distinguish herself. I mean, it's just kind of that typical go-to plucky young reporter part you know where you know nobody wants to listen to to what she has to say but she's going deep she's getting the scoop and all that it's just <laughs> it's a character we've seen so many times before and it's really just a throwaway part in this although interestingly i did read that uh, the makers of this film did want didn't originally want melissa prophet they actually originally wanted whoopi goldberg for that part yeah. Which would, that. which would have made this a very different film, you kind of feel. Perhaps in a good way, but it just uh, it would have been a very different film, I think, if you'd had Whippy Goldberg in there. Well, I think that would have been just the ultimate kind of strange take on the buddy formula if you had Chuck <laughs> Norris with Whippy Goldberg. So, yeah, I, I, there's definitely a part of me that would be uh, morbidly curious to see that team up. <laughs> Well, uh, I think Whippy Goldberg made, um, in the same year, she made uh, The Color Purple. So you can perhaps understand why she turned down the opportunity. <laughs> why she you want to work with Spielberg, you don't want to work with Chuck Norris. What is the world coming to, I tell you? 
And I, that's a choice that Whippy Goldberg has to live with to this day. Yeah, as you'd expect in a canon film, this, there's some great, massive action set pieces in, the, in here. What did you make of all of the machine gun and rocket launcher action on display here? Oh, it was great. There's some great standout sequences here. I, and I think the mall scene is, is definitely one of the ones that, you know, I just keep going back to in my mind. You know, I, I kind of compared it to the Blues Brothers a little bit, you know, <laughs> Be, having grown up in the Chicago area and that film being a big part of my life, you know, the, we're, we're driving cars through the, the shopping center in this, and it's, it's kind of reminiscent of that. You've got, there's an element there that reminded me of the untouchables, which actually came a few years after this, but the whole, the whole attack in the mall is started by a guy that has a shopping bag and he, he drops it and, and a guy notices it and is like, Hey, mister, you forgot your bag. And he's chasing around, which they do in the untouchables where the little girl picks up the package. And, hey, mister, you dropped your bag. And then everything blows up. You know, and they, so they do that same thing in this movie. But yeah, that, that mall scene just keeps building and building. You know, you've got tons of guys and they're shooting. You got the cars driving around and then they take it out on the street. You know, and like we were talking about before with all the elements of Americana in here, it's not just a mall. It's a mall at Christmas time. So it's, it's crowded and you've got kids around. Again, you know, you, you, there's kids all over the place in danger in this movie, which just blew me away. But the mall scene is, is great. You know, another scene that, uh, I loved was the one we mentioned earlier where, where Lynch blows up the neighborhood where they're just in this suburban mm. neighborhood and they, they just, you know, blast a couple of houses with the rocket launchers. And I was reading up on the trivia here as well. And I guess as I was watching that, I'm thinking that looks like a real neighborhood. I mean, they're really blowing those houses up. And sure enough, it was according to, uh, IMDB, it says that this was a neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia that was due for demolition because they were going to be expanding the grounds of the airport there. And so they were going to be tearing this neighborhood down. So they gave them permission to just literally go and destroy these houses. And it's a very effective sequence because it, it does not look like special effects at all. It really looks like these houses are being destroyed, which they were. Well, I can confirm that piece of trivia because uh, there's a really great documentary all about the Cannon Group and all the films that they made. And one of the uh, one of the interviewees uh, in that talks about the making of Invasion USA and, and says exactly that, that basically they got to just actually blow up those houses. And so, yeah, we get to see some real excess in the action front yeah. here. And the, the climax of the film, I mean, it, if you're going to invade United States of America, you need, you know, the film probably does need to end with, what looks like World War Three, and yeah, you do pretty much, there's a huge gun battle at the end of this film, um, as the kind of terrorists all storm this building, trying to finally kill Chuck Norris off, and uh, they do battle with the kind of the army that have been sort of brought in to sort of protect this building, so yeah, we not, certainly don't finish this film feeling shortchanged about the number of explosions, or the amount of machine gun deaths that we've seen in uh, in this film. No, it's great. The, the the conclusion is great too, and yeah, and especially too the ending. The, I mean, the ultimate ending, the way that you know, spoiler alert, Richard Lynch gets his here is just fantastic. You know, we were talking about all the rocket launchers. Well, it involves a rocket launcher, and basically Chuck Norris blows him away, and then credits roll. We don't we don't need anything more. We don't need, you know, we don't have Norris getting back with the producer or no, not the producer, the, the reporter. You know, n we don't need any of that stuff. You know, Norris just stands there, sees what he's done, throws the rocket launcher aside, credits roll. 
perfect ending right there it's a fantastic ending to a, a film it's wonderful overkill i mean you know you've built these two characters up in this film you know what better way for them to kind of finally settle the score than to kind of give them both a rocket launcher and then have some sort of classic western type sort of showdown who can who can fly first a great moment of overkill i think in a, in a film which uh, you know is pretty no holds barred when it comes to the action Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be examining the exploding helicopter action in Invasion USA. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk... Hello, Julie, what the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spot sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download the show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. We're back, and now we're going to be casting a critical eye over the exploding helicopter action in this film. The key scene occurs late in the film, when Chuck Norris lays a trap for Rostov by tempting him into a skyscraper where he's waiting for him. Rostov intends to make his getaway in a helicopter that he's left on the roof, but Norris cuts off that escape route by sneaking up on the helicopter and his doomed pilot with a rocket launcher and blowing it up at point-blank range. Todd, what did you make of the chopper fireball action here? For all the things that I loved about this movie, I was both... Uh, I both loved and was a little bit disappointed in the actual exploding helicopter. You know, what you described there, you know, great setup. The He shoots the rocket launcher, the helicopter blows up, and it doesn't just blow up. I mean, it blows up in such a way that the screen is completely whited out for several seconds. I mean, it's that big and bright the way this happens. And I thought that was really great. But at the same time, the helicopter is just sitting there. It's not up in the air. It's not making a getaway. It's not like we've got people in there shooting at Norris. It's just a sitting duck. So that part of things I didn't care for as much. And, you know, I mean, knowing Canon, they, you know, this may have been a helicopter that didn't work at all, you know, and they, they just, <laughs> they were able to destroy this thing. So it was sitting there and that's all that they could do. But, you know, while I found the actual explosion of it to be quite spectacular, I kind of wish for a little bit more as to, you know, having it midair or, you know, come crashing to the ground or, you know, at least some spinning propellers or some gunfire or something like that. I would agree with you because I think, as you say, the explosion kind of completely consumes the screen, but there's no wreckage really um, around this. And the whole fact that the, the helicopter is just sort of sitting there, you know, the pilot is just sort of sitting there fairly lamely inside he doesn't try to pull a gun or kind of threaten Norris in any way and you know Norris just pulls out his rocket launcher and, and blows the thing up and it just felt a bit like kicking a defenseless puppy really yeah, um, yeah exactly it was a, mo- a rare moment in in the film where I just thought was that actually needed um <laughs> which is yeah not a not a sort of a feeling you really expect to get in Invasion USA. And, you know, it did feel slightly anticlimactic. And I know we we sort of were talking about one-liners in this film. It just, you know, I felt maybe if there was a sort of one-liner at the end of this, maybe that would have wrapped the scene up and maybe compensated for the lack of some of the other elements. But, Mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of enjoyed the sort of gratuitous overkill, but it did leave me um, slightly unsatisfied. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you completely on that. 
Well, I think that wraps things up for this show. Todd, thanks very much for joining me to talk about Invasion USA. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great to be on. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Exploding Helicopter podcast. If you did, then you might want to check out the Lair of the Unwanted. I was recently a guest on their show to talk about Skyscraper, a shameless diehard. <laughs> <rip>. Oh, my. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you seen it, Todd? I have seen Skyscraper. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago on the Lambcast we, I was on an episode that was where we counted down our three worst movies of all time. Skyscraper was my number two. <laughs> well, I think it's definitely a worthy entry on anyone's worst of lists. It's one moment of inspiration is to kind of replace Bruce Willis with uh, Anna Nicole Smith. And her <laughs> performance, or should I say non-performance in this film, yeah, ha- really does have to be a scene to be believed. Yes, absolutely. You know, whether you've seen the film or not, you know, I would recommend sort of checking out that podcast. It was a really sort of fun discussion of a pretty tacky film. So if you want to check it out, then you can find The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes and Podomatic. Hopefully that show will keep you going until uh, our next one. Until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.